God our Father, we come before you this morning so thankful for your word. And God, we thank you that you are so brutally honest, that you are not like the false gods of this world, but you are the one who has created us, that you are the God of all truth. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would not only fill our heads, which we do pray for, Lord, that you would speak to us the truth, but Lord, that you would even touch our hearts and, and particularly our wills, God, that we would turn to you and, and trust in you. In those ways, God, that maybe we have wandered, I pray that you would draw us back. In those ways, God, that we have walked faithfully with you, that you would continue to cause us to do so. That God, that in all things, that you might receive the glory and the praise that you deserve. We ask this in your name. Amen. So do you ever find yourself looking from from the looking for relief from the mundaneness of life? I think we probably all do to to some degree. You know, kids, you spend the day at school working and learning, and when school is done, what do you do? Well, you may come home or you may already be home and you may go outside and play or maybe watch TV or do some other activity that you enjoy. Uh, young people, what, what do you do? Well, you, you may uh, come home and start texting friends or uh, may jump on the Internet and watch YouTube videos or do whatever. I don't know. Men, you come home from work and you look for ways to unwind, right? Maybe work on a project around the house or, or watch TV or if you're married, you may play with your kids. Women, you probably don't get much of an opportunity to relax. But when you do... Um, you surely look for ways to escape the ordinary routine of life. And maybe that comes in reading a good book. Maybe that comes in soaking in the bathtub. Maybe you only wish you had time to soak in the bathtub, I don't know, or go shopping or, or something else. But we all have ways that we seek to sort of decompress from the everyday responsibilities of life. And as we come to the second chapter of Ecclesiastes, we see Solomon continuing his quest to understand life, and particularly life under the sun. And he has already, in, our, in this book, examined earthly wisdom and learning and knowledge, and he has found it wanting. And now he turns himself to pleasure and to fulfilling his desires, to hedonism, if you would. Now, for those of you that may not know, kids, you may not know, hedonism is the idea that the pursuit of pleasure, that is making yourself happy, is the most important goal in life. And the idea behind hedonism is, is it believes that if you can gain pleasure, true pleasure, that you will find true and everlasting happiness. And so Solomon begins to test out that theory of, of pleasure. And I want us this morning to look at pleasure and look at three things. First of all, the pursuit of pleasure. Second of all, the pledge of pleasure. And third, the purpose in pleasure. Pursuit, pledge, and purpose of pleasure. So, first of all, let's look at the pursuit of pleasure. We see that in verse 1 where Solomon says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. You see, Solomon sought to please himself in multiple ways. He approached life with the view that whatever makes him feel good, he'll do it. He wants to have fun. 
But immediately, in verse 2, the preacher comes right out and says, you know, as I did this experiment um, about pleasure, the conclusion is it failed. It doesn't work. Pleasure as the means or the avenue for providing a sense of satisfaction and meaning in life just doesn't work. You know, it just can't carry the weight of that. And lest we might think that maybe the preacher doesn't know how to seek out pleasure in life, he then outlines the things that he did. Beginning in verse 2, the first thing he does is he turns to laughter. Now, I don't know if you've ever been somewhere where you have laughed so much that your face hurts. You ever done that? Where you've, you've been laughing so much that, you know, uh, it's just like you have this permanent smile on your face. You know, even when the jokes keep flowing and it's no longer funny, maybe it's even turns into sort of silliness. And you're thinking, this isn't even funny, but you just laugh so much. It just seems like uh, your smile has become painfully fixed on your face. Well, that's the kind of laughter that he's talking about here in, in this verse. And we all enjoy laughing and maybe some of us don't do it enough. But when we do do it, we enjoy laughter and it's been said that laughter is the best medicine. And it truly is a wonderful gift from God that we can laugh. And even later on in Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3 and verse 4, the preacher teaches that there are times when the only appropriate way to respond is to laugh. He said there's a season for everything, even including laughter. And oftentimes laughter is the language of a joyful heart. It shows the joy that we have. And we really appreciate those in our lives, do we not, who can make us laugh? And maybe that's a comedian on the internet or on TV. Maybe it's a family member or a friend or, or someone else. But as good as laughter can be, it cannot fully heal us from all that ails us under the sun. Everything in this life. Uh, Proverbs chapter 14 Verse 13, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 13, the beginning of that verse says, Even in laughter, the heart may ache. You see, laughter can't fix everything. It's, as wonderful of a gift as it is, it cannot. Now, you may know people who don't realize that, who make everything a joke. They're cracking jokes about everything. As a matter of fact, you may have known some people that it seems like they even crack jokes at the most inappropriate times when somebody is deathly ill or at a funeral or something like that. And that's why uh, the book of Proverbs says in Proverbs 25:20, 20, whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. You see, laughter definitely has a place in our lives and uh, and we probably need it for the medicine of our souls. But we cannot simply laugh our problems away. And then the preacher, he talks about not only here, but even in chapter seven, he said at times it's better to be amongst the mourners than it is to be amongst those who are partying and having a good time. It says in chapter Seven verse three said laughter can bless us, but while we dwell under the sun, sorrow is better than laughter because sorrow directs us back to God. So he looks, first of all, at laughter and he finds it lacking. But then he turns to alcohol and he says in verse three, I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold the folly 
till I see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So the preacher turns to drink to gladden his soul as wine gladdens the life. That's the words he uses in chapter 10, verse 19, that wine can gladden the life. But notice that the preacher doesn't get hammered with alcohol. He's not drunk. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look back at verse 3, he talks about how he searched with his heart to cheer his body. But he says, my heart is still guiding me with wisdom. In other words, I haven't lost all my senses. I haven't gotten so drunk that I sort of forgot you know, what I've done, like some people who wake up the next morning not remember who they've been with or what they've done the night before. And even in uh, the book of Nehemiah, you see Nehemiah encouraging God's people to eat the fat and to drink sweet wine, it says in Nehemiah 8.10, as a way of celebrating the holiness of the day that the people were experiencing. And so, like laughter, alcohol is good, but it falls short of giving true life meaning. As a matter of fact, the Bible warns against this, and I know we've been reading through the book of Proverbs, and not too long ago we've read some of these passages. Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, and strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Or Proverbs 23, 29, and 30, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. You see, alcohol can delight our soul. It can be a good thing, but it can't address everything. As a matter of fact, it can become a stumbling block, the scriptures tells us. And that's why if you look at that passage in Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10, Nehemiah does encourage the people to eat well, guys, and drink up. Let's celebrate that this is a holy day to the Lord. But at the end of that verse, he says, this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's good to celebrate the things that the Lord has given us. Wine gladdens the heart, but it is the joy of the Lord that is one's strength. And how true that is. And we read that throughout Scripture, that God calls people to come to Him and to drink. Doesn't always use the analogy of wine, sometimes water, but like Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. God says, He who hungers and thirsts, come to me to buy food and drink that truly satisfies, but this is the clench. clencher. It's free. It doesn't cost anything. It doesn't cost you anything because, of course, Christ paid that price. And that's why Jesus says in John seven thirty seven, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You see, Solomon sees that alcohol is a good gift from the Lord, but it cannot satisfy. He also sort of alludes to something else, and that is uh, sexuality in, in verse 8. In our day and age, alcohol and sex, unfortunately, oftentimes go together, and both men and women understand that alcohol oftentimes takes away the inhibitions and allows them to do things that they might not necessarily do if they were thinking clearly. But Solomon says in verse 8 that he had many wives and, and many concubines. And he says, uh, the delight of the sons of man. You see, Solomon 
knew the company of many different women and he could indulge himself if he desires. You know, uh, but in all these things, Solomon was left lacking and there was more that was necessary if there was truly to be meaning in life. But then he goes on and he says, not only have I looked at laughter, at, at alcohol, sexuality, but then in verses 4 through 6, he talks about the creativity that, that he uh, took advantage of. It says, now the preacher turns his attention to the things he made. In verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. You see, I think sometimes when we think of hedonism, we only think of the dark side of it. We only think of hedonism in terms of debauchery and drunkenness and sexuality, sexual immorality and other impure and godless lifestyles. But that's not completely accurate. Solomon turns to things that are good. He talks about how like an artist or an architecture, a designer, that Solomon conceptualized what he wants and he built it, or at least he had it built. And so he says in verses 5 and 6, not only did he, he make houses and vineyards, but he said, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So Solomon joined the works of his hands with that of nature to bring him pleasure. The preacher enjoyed such creativity and all who came to visit him noticed that. And if you remember from last week as we looked at 2 Kings chapter 10 when the queen of Bathsheba came. She came and she was speechless when she saw all that Solomon had made. That was uh, his creativity that he had. And likewise, uh, like Solomon, God has given us that ability of creativity. For some of us, it might be more evident it might come in terms of being artistic, to be able to draw or to sculpture. Others may be able to be creative with wood or stone. Some are better maybe with words and, and teaching and creative that way. Others uh, may have well-tended gardens and your house looks amazing. Or maybe it's collecting antiques. I don't know. Or it might be even quoting poetry or playing music in a way that moves the hearer great and very deeply. And Solomon understood that. I mean, it even says in verse 8 that he got singers, both men and women. And for us, oftentimes when we listen to music, unless you're musically talented, if you are, what a blessing that the Lord has given you. But if you're not like me, then your music maybe comes in the form of downloading your playlist so that you can listen to your music. But he had the blessing of hearing live performers and, and the joy of that. He understood that music evokes memory and stirs the imagination. But in all these activities, while praiseworthy in themselves, they're not enough to bring lasting satisfaction. And so Solomon turns his attention to money and to possessions and fame and work in verses 7 and 8 and even verse 11. Now, why are Americans so unhappy? Actually, that was the title of an article in the Huffington Post a number of years ago that said that Americans are amongst the wealthiest and most privileged people in the world, but we are far less content and rarely happy as those who profess or who possess just a fraction of what we have. Since the time when Adam and Eve believed that they needed just one more tree 
They just needed one more fruit to find that happiness that their lives would be meaningless unless they had that. The human soul has been prone to think that we just need a little more pleasure or a little more of something in order to fulfill us and make us happy. And for many of us to have more money is a way of providing just a little, the little bit more that our hearts desire. And so many of us build our lives around a pursuit of getting more for tomorrow than we have today. I mean, think about it. Is, could you honestly say that you're completely content with your life? That there's nothing that you want? That there's nothing that you desire? Oftentimes, we do have that desire for just a little bit more. And the things that we want aren't necessarily bad, but it is that desire of not having that contentment until we think that we have the next thing. Well, the preacher tells us about this pursuit that he had of money and possessions in verses 7 and 8. He said, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who have been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and provinces. So the preacher captures what so many of us desire. He had possessions and security and power over other people and so much more than that. As a matter of fact, if, as you look at this, you realize that Solomon says, Look, people, I don't care what pleasures you have in your life, what ability you have to indulge your desires you're not even close to where I was. He has so much more than, than any of us. And so Solomon had it all and concluded that it was not uh, satisfying, that it was vain. Look at verse 10 and 11. He said, And whatever my eye desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was the reward of my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You see, Solomon understood that nothing perishable could satisfy him. Even the most sophisticated of pleasures that, that we might encounter will never satisfy us because we are made as eternal creatures. And so nothing uh, of this earth can fulfill that desire in the way that God created us. It's all vanity and a striving after the wind, he says. And then Solomon illustrates that talking about three realities in life. First of all, he talks about the amount of joy we get from our work is not enough in itself to redeem the years of the toil it requires. Look at verse 11. He, he, he is where he mentions that. He said, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after when. Maybe you can think of something in your life that took many years of your life. Maybe it was a job you had. Maybe it was uh, seeking an educational degree or, or something else. And as you reflect on that time, as you look back and you see the sacrifices that were made and the length of time that you did, you had to ask yourself, was it really worth the sacrifice I made to accomplish this? It's a chasing after the wind. But he said, not only is that a chasing after the wind, but so is the reality 
that we all work so hard our whole lives to accomplish what we do only to leave it to someone else who we don't know if they'll squander it or what they'll do with it in our death. Look at verses 18 through 21. He, he said that there are few that, that really make a name for themselves and those who do must leave it to the hands of others. And I just, as I was thinking about this, I was just thinking about men like Sam Walton who built this huge empire with Walmart and, and Sam's Club. And I, I remember, I guess I'm old enough, I remember when those stores came out and I remember the quality of service and products that you got and, and it's amazing. And then after he died, you begin to see that sort of wane a little bit. And maybe corners were cut. Um, even Chick-fil-A, you know, before uh, the owner passed to go to be with glory. And now his son and others are taking over. It's, a, it's vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. But then the preacher uh, begins to contemplate wisdom and folly in verses 12 through 16. And he draws, rightly so, the conclusion that wisdom is better than folly and sin. But then, that doesn't mean that wisdom will provide an escape from vanity because the same fate happens to all of us. We all end up in the grave, as we see in verses 15 and 16. Lives completely different in their moral character end up in the same way. Have you ever thought about that? The most godless, heinous, wicked criminal and the most upright citizen both end up the same. However wise one is, one dies just like the fool. And in this sense, pursuing wisdom is a pursuing the win. Now, I want to talk just a minute about the pledge of, of pleasure. And what I'm talking about is the pledge or the promise of the world about pleasure. The world is constantly coming to us, uh, sort of uh, uh, handing out its wares. You know, the whole idea of pleasure is not just something we decide to pursue or not to pursue. The world is there shoving it right in our face. And we saw that a little bit last week as we looked at Genesis chapter 3 and even Satan as he comes to Eve and began to plant doubt in her mind that is God good? Did he really give you everything you need? You really need more. And that's the same promise that the world gives today. It's interesting, this week I read um, that sociologists say that uh, about 20,000 times a day, you, we are hit with an image or an idea us, promising us pleasure in this world. Whether that's through print media, whether it's through the radio, it's a television or the internet, we are being promised 20,000 times a day by this world that it can provide you pleasure and satisfaction. And that's a lie. That earthly pleasure can provide you with true satisfaction. You just need to give it a chance. That's the message of the world. And that's what every commercial that you hear uh, is telling you. Just give it a chance. It will work. You're not happy. You haven't given it a chance. It will make you happy. Just do X or buy Y or just go to Z. And it will give you the satisfaction 
and pleasure. And sometimes it does for a period of time, but then eventually that fades. We get the new car, but then the new car becomes the old car, or we have the, we have the latest iPhone, and then six months later they come out with something different, and that looks even shinier, and we set our hearts upon that. And sometimes the pleasures we seek come with unexpected consequences uh, that we didn't realize that are very costly. Of course, the pleasures of this world don't satisfy us, but don't worry, the world's not going to just let us come to that conclusion. The world instead says, no, the problem is, it's not that it doesn't satisfy, it's just that you didn't get it right. If you want to be satisfied, you just haven't found the right thing. By the way, the right thing is the next thing. Do you hear that? It's the next thing. So whatever you have now, yeah, sure, you're not satisfied, but go to the next thing. And we get there and then they're like, well, no, it's the next thing. It's sort of like having a discussion with your kids. Have you tried to explain to your kids what tomorrow is? So they're like, is today tomorrow? No, it'll be the day after this. So you get to that day and then they say, okay, so today is tomorrow? No, you know, and it's just a vicious circle. Anyway, it's the same way with this idea that the next thing is the best thing. Then, of course, there are those folks who are pretty satisfied with the pleasures of their world. They just sort of live on the party scene all the time. They don't think much about this world and they feel very satisfied. But we all know the shallowness that that brings and how even when we numb ourselves from reality, we will one day have to pay the piper. I mean, you think about all the different celebrities you know, and I think especially of those who are, have been comedians who have made maybe millions of people laugh and they have been endeared in the hearts of many and yet they come to their life and they commit suicide because they can't handle the hollowness of their life or the pain and the things that are going on in their life. And so if you're going to the way of pleasure, the reason that we're going that way is because there is something that's not filled up in us and the pleasure is not going to be filled up and we're not going to become and we're just going to become emptier and emptier because there is nothing there. Our self cannot bear the weight. Feeding ourselves, making ourselves the center of the universe cannot fill up that desire. And I know that most people that are seeking pleasure do so and they don't really think that they are questioning meaning but they are and I just want to say this especially to young people uh, there are many temptations out there and I know that the world that we live in is more aggressively going after our young people and you say Rick you're talking to church kids I said I know but the temptation is no less for church kids to go out and to get drunk to just try a little bit of pot it'll just sort of relax you or maybe just to get into the party scene or maybe just to loosen your morals and be with someone intimately all these things are out there but let me just tell you those pleasures of the lies of the world they will not satisfy the soul you know in his essay the weight of glory C.S. Lewis famously says we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it's meant by the offer of a holiday or a vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And Lewis is really echoing what the preacher is saying. Even though there are the, these pleasures in the world that are ours for us, they cannot satisfy what only God is meant to satisfy. And maybe that's where some of you are today. You're looking for relief from the monotony of life or from the insubstantial meaning of your life. And so you're seeking to look at pleasures. And that could be the things we mentioned. It could be throwing yourself into pornography or playing video games or any number of things. And in one way, I think you can see that in our lives is just to see if you have the ability to do nothing. Do we keep our lives so busy and so filled with something that we have no time to stop and to reflect? And in those times that we have time to reflect, do our hearts turn to the Lord? Well, if you look at verses 24 through 26, that is the purpose and pleasure um, Solomon comes to the conclusion of the matter and he said there is nothing better for a person that that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil this also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment for to the one who pleases him God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God, this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Solomon says that we should do in life is eat, drink, and find enjoyment in your labor. But how do we do this if everything is meaningless? And the answer is by understanding that this is a gift that God has given us from his hand. That the only pleasure that can ultimately fulfill us is the pleasure in God. The problem with the pursuit of pleasure is not that pleasure in itself is wrong. I mean, there are pleasures that are wrong. Okay, understand that. And there are pleasures that are immoral. I'm not talking about those. But even the good things, as Solomon talked about, creativity and those things, there's nothing wrong with those. The fundamental problem is seeking pleasure as a substitute for God, seeking ultimate pleasure in the wrong way. So we're not to renounce pleasure in life, but to seek pleasure in God. And I think that's important for us to, to uh, hear because the world thinks that the Christian agenda is to make you miserable as possible if you're a Christian. And sometimes Christians sort of demonstrate that on their face. We don't always smile as people. You don't always see the joy of the Lord uh, coming through. And I think also we talk about things like dying to self, denying yourself, take up your cross, you know, uh, be a living sacrifice to God. And the world looks at that and they say, see, no fun. And the reality is it's true to to die to self is not fun. But as Jesus tells us, when you die to yourself, you find new life in me, in Jesus. And the message of the Bible is, is that those who die to self find pleasure forevermore, a pleasure that is more deep, more satisfying, more lasting. So we are to live and to find joy 
in what we do, but we will only have joy when we consider all things in relation to God. So brothers and sisters, how does this fit into our lives? Well, that, that means that in all the things that we do, whether in word, whether in deed, you know, whether it's changing diapers, whether it's going to school and going and studying a topic that you really don't care much about, in all of these things, and maybe a job that feels like a dead-end job, is to do it for the glory of God. To understand that God has put us in that place and He has called us to do that. And that we find our satisfaction not just in the toil, but in, 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 in God Himself who has placed us there. And so if we seek meaning through gaining all that our hearts desire in this life, we'll find it vanity. However, if we see all of life as a gift from God and we seek to live for His glory, realizing that everything we do is being used by Him to fulfill His ultimate purpose and plan, and we see everything for His glory, there will be truly satisfaction. So where is your heart this morning? What are you setting your affections on? You know, like the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus really is calling us to come to him and to find satisfaction in him. Jesus said to the woman, everyone who drinks this water, that is the water, the physical water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, that's the blessed promise that we have. Is that where your heart is? Do you delight in the Lord? In those times when you think, okay, I really, I, we never get to a point where we have nothing to do. But there are times when we can just stop and reflect and the question is, are our hearts directed to the Lord? Are our hearts given to Him? Just because we are believers in God doesn't necessarily mean that that will automatically be the case. I think about the Israelites in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, where the prophet Jeremiah said to God's people, he said, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns or wells that can hold no water. Will you come to Jesus, the living water? Or will you continue to drink from the wells of the world that will not satisfy? Solomon reminds us that it is only in God himself and particularly in Jesus Christ that we can find our true and everlasting satisfaction. Please bow with me if you would and let's meditate upon the word that was preached this morning. Lord, I thank you that your word is, is true and sure. And I just pray, Lord, for us as your people that you would... Uh, draw our hearts ever closer to you. Lord, this week, as we have those times when we're looking to decompress, as we're seeking to, to rest, Lord, I pray that you would draw our hearts ever to you. 
Lord, that we would just stop and uh, to reflect upon who you are. We thank you, God, that, that your spirit is faithful. You're f- not only to your word, but also to, to draw us ever closer to you and cause us to mature and to become like Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would be our satisfaction. And Lord, that it would show that others could see the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our delight. And God, may you not only help us as individual Christians and as households, but as a body to demonstrate such delight and joy. We thank you, Lord, and pray this in your name. Amen.